You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 4 of a fanfiction story titled Minutia by today's guest fanfiction writer, Atlan Merrick. Sherlock has had to improvise extensively in his line of work, never more so than when it comes to fighting and defense. He's grappled with miscreants in alleys, under bridges, on the banks of the Thames, and once in the back room of a bakery that specialized in naughty cakes. He has defended himself with pie tins, placards, stones, sticks and bricks, but probably the oddest armaments he's ever taken up to bring lawbreakers low are a giant wooden clog and a snare drum. John answers direct questions about the war, but doesn't usually offer information, which is why Sherlock was caught by surprise after opening a small box in John's dresser drawer. He'd needed beige thread and an eye patch, so of course he was digging through John's bedroom hoping to find either one. Spying a small, unassuming box he thought might be a sewing kit, Sherlock instead found two conspicuous gallantry crosses, and a military cross. When John came home that night, Sherlock held him a while, then kissed his forehead gently three times. Sherlock loves piggyback rides. The detective's fondness results from spending the summer of his fifth year being carried around on Mycroft's back, quite literally, over the river and through the woods. When Sherlock thinks of childhood, and he generally avoids it, this is one of the few things he remembers warmly. Two people on the planet know any of this, and Sherlock has let both know he would feed them to the skull if they ever told anyone. Anyone. Ever. So. John is a lot stronger than he looks, a fact he feels no pressing need to prove, yet a truth he does wish were a little more widely known. All this is by way of saying that if Sherlock ever wanted a piggyback ride or two some summer day, John Watson would be more than happy to oblige offer good indefinitely. Sherlock has a tendency to overdo, well, pretty much everything. He'll shout when whispering is enough, run when walking will do, and when celebrating his and John's first month together, the best gift Sherlock could think of to give his lover were the initials J.W. carved into his own pale chest with a scalpel, right over his heart. With all of his heart, John believes in healing. Yet as disturbing as he found Sherlock's bloody anniversary gift to be, five years on, he sometimes looks at the faint scar it left behind and feels his heart beat a little faster. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest fanfiction writer today is Atlan Merrick. She joined AO3 in 2012 and currently has 93 fanfictions posted for Sherlock Holmes, Star Wars, Logan Lucky, Crash Pad, Our Flag Means Death, Anna Karenina, 
Peter Rabbit, and Good Omens. Atlin is a commissioning editor for Improbable Press. She's a writer and loves to travel. She misses Dublin and London terribly. And she also drinks coffee that can be mistaken for lava. Hell yeah, fellow coffee lover. I love it. Atlin Merrick, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. Welcome to the show. How are you? I am very good. Thank you. Chaos Blue. Yes, I appreciate a fellow burn me, burn me with the coffee. Yes, yes. Well, you have to have it that hot to wake you up in the morning. At least for me, if it's not that hot, forget about it. (laughs) Well, it's just when it's tepid, I don't know. The soul has left the building of the coffee. It needs to be boiling, boiling. Nearly. Yes. At that tepid temperature, it's just dirt water to me at that point. And I'm like, I don't want the dirt water. (laughs) No, thank you. You may have it. I will drink cold coffee, actually, oddly, but not tepid coffee. It's boiling or it's cold. But it's I mean, I don't want it cold. But, you know, if you forget the cup, you can still drink it cold. Exactly. Well, we we have to do that sometimes here in the summertime in Arizona. It gets so stifling hot that sometimes you got to add a little bit of ice cube in there. But yes, I totally get what you mean. So that's you're picking up wonderful. what I'm putting down. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we're gonna have a really great show today. I'm so excited to talk to you for so many different reasons. Um, you have a lot of experience with fandom, and I suspect that you have some really interesting stories. So I am so excited to dive in with you on that. The first thing that I want to know, I want to kind of set the stage here. I want to know what year you first entered fandom and what did those first fandom experiences look like for you? It's an interesting question because entering fandom as a really active participant is different from how when I first entered fandom. A very active participant, I would suppose, was gee whiz. 97 or 8, whenever Babylon 5 was around. Yes, that would have been the 90s. Yeah, 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 late 90s. That's when I started really writing fic and getting involved on the news groups, you know, talking with other people, being on the news groups where J. Michael Straczynski was uh, was there, the moderated news groups. So that was kind of my first involvement, but my deep involvement of like, oh, gee, like chewing, chewy fandom was in 2010. So that's a a wide ranging answer. 1990, late 1990s, but also 2010. I love that because it sounds like you and I kind of entered fandom spaces and around the same time because I entered 1997. You know, I was much, you know, I'm sure I was much younger than you were. But, you were um, a baby. I was just a little baby, 14. But I always thought that that was a really interesting time to kind of enter fandom because the internet was kind of this brand new thing. You know, a lot of people were just getting it in their homes for the first time. A lot of people were just using email and online chat services for the first time. I mean, these were like brand new technologies for a lot of people. And so it's interesting when I think about it that, oh, my fandom experiences have always involved the internet. I'm way too young to remember when fandom was congregating at in real life conventions and passing around paper fanzines. I think that that era of fandom is fascinating. I just wasn't there. It always involved the internet. But you know what I do know about the late 90s is that even though the internet was there for us in our fandom spaces and things like that, fanzines were still a thing. 
in the late 90s. Was that ever part of your fandom experience? It was not direct part of my fandom experience. It was a thing I saw occasionally. But yeah, my my world, I suppose, was pretty small in terms of fandom in the 90s. It was very much online, strictly online. And I don't think I went to conventions, really. I wasn't as involved as I got, you know, about 10, 12 years later. So I've seen fanzines, but that wasn't my writing milieu. I didn't write for fandom and publish in fanzines. No. When I started writing for fandom, it was all online. Yeah. And that's what I observed uh, the most. I didn't even know for years and years and years that there was a fanzine scene. I kind of had to learn that. You mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. The older I got in fandom, the more I realized, oh, my God, there's a history here. Oh, it wasn't always just the Internet. And it was always super interesting to, to learn that. But yeah, mine was absolutely online. And it sounds like yours was as well. So you said it was Babylon 5 that got yes. you into fandom for the first time? It got me writing in fandom. I liked X-Files as well. But to me, getting involved was how I sort of date myself in fandom. When did I first start writing? Because I've been a writer for, I don't know, since my late 20s professionally. So when did I start writing? And so it was X-Files and Babylon 5 that I started writing fic for the characters. And that was the beginning and sharing it you know, and then getting into little groups of people like we would all remove ourselves, not remove ourselves, but step aside into email lists and share our stories and such. So now I forgot the question. <laughs> no, uh, no, that's I'm answering perfect. it, but it's, it's vanished. That's what? perfect. Now, okay, so prior to 1997, prior to like, you know, getting into to fandom for real and writing your first fix, did you know what fan fiction was prior to the late 90s? I did not. I was busy traveling around and sort of getting involved in like seeing the world. So I didn't even at that time know I was a writer. So no, I had no idea about fan fiction until I suppose the X-Files Babylon 5 time when people would share stories. It didn't seem a surprise to me. I know a lot of folks step into fandom and they're like, what is this magic called fan fiction. It's amazing. How did I not know? And for me, I guess maybe it seemed unexpected, probably because I was mentally a writer. I don't know. But fan fiction was not a revelation. It was a seemed a natural progression to me for everybody who loves something. Yes, I'd like to create as well. You know, it's, it's very involving creating something pod fix or art or stories. Yes, yes, it is, you know, because you have so much passion and excitement Mm -hmm, for these mm -hmm. things, right, that we love. And for so many of us in fandom, it's not enough to just consume it and be like, well, that was fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, so many of us have these great big feelings and this urge to create something with that love. Yes. Exactly. And what better way to do that than, like you said, create something Mm -hmm. with those feelings. I love that. Now, those Usenet groups and those email groups you were part of, is that where you encountered fan fiction for the first time? Or was it like people's personal pages? Or do you remember? I actually honestly don't remember. I don't. I remember reading. Actually, I remember reading X-Files fic more than I remember reading Babylon 5 fic, even though I mentally put myself in the Babylon 5 fandom. I remember reading fic. I just don't quite know where I was reading it. It must have been on the Usenet groups. 
it had to have been. Yes, it was on the Usenet groups. You know, here's here's a title. And you, all you know is, you know, the pairing, probably Crycheck and Mulder or something like that. <laughs> yes. And and you're like, okay, what's this about? So I must have, I know that's where I encountered it. And it had to have been on the Usenet groups. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Because I know that the X-Files particularly had a quite an active Usenet group at that time that yeah. was very popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. A, a lot of people that were on there and Gossamer and things like that. So, um, so yeah, that sounds like the perfect place to kind of uh, get your feet wet a little bit with, yeah, yeah. with fan fiction and the like. That's wonderful. Now, I have a question for you about these, these Usenet groups. I have talked to a couple of other people that were actually in those same X-Files Usenet groups that you were, and they have told me that being in those Usenet groups was a particular fandom experience that they have yet to be able to replicate in yeah, these modern days that we find ourselves in because they, they've they told me that it was just a very tight-knit sort of community where all of the members talked to each other like on a daily basis. You were constantly going back and forth with messages and meta and ideas and things like that. Was that your experience as well with these Usenet groups? Interestingly, no. <laughs> um, I have found that much more later, like in 2010, 11, 12, and so on. On the Usenet groups, I remember, you know, occasionally meeting people at like fandom things, but I don't remember. I could be lying through my teeth. I could be just literally not remembering. But I, I got so involved later that it's maybe superseding what I can remember about the late 90s, because from 2010 and onward, fandom became an actual functioning job, a part of my life. So I cannot speak to that. I can say, no, I do not recall it being so in-depth on that happened. It did, maybe, but it's not something I recall strongly. There's the short answer. Okay, so now I'm very super curious about, you know, as you're speaking, in my mind, I'm seeing this like picture, right? I'm seeing the the late 90s era of Atlan's, you know, fandom experience. And then I'm seeing this whole nother, I don't know what you want to call it, era, right? Mm -hmm, you said mm -hmm. about 2010, mm -hmm. where it became something that was more consuming for you, right? And I'm wondering what that looks like. How did that change for you? I think in part, the, tw the, the earlier part, I did start writing, you know, stories. And then for me personally, and this is not everybody's journey, nor should it be. Fandom is literally anything that gives you joy, I think. But for me, what gave me joy was taking stories I wrote, say, X-Files or Babylon 5, and scrubbing the serial numbers off. And I ended up selling those stories to various, this is going to sound funny, men's wank magazines. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's perfect. Oh, yeah. Um, so I started selling my stories. And I think that's maybe how I uh, somewhat got less involved with the fandom because I did find like an editor who liked my work. And so he would buy my stories. And then I started getting into year's best anthologies. So the writing became more consuming and the fandom less so. And then I 
I guess I stopped being in fandom for a while. X-Files kind of went south as far as I'm concerned for me. Babylon 5 went off the air after its five years and there was no new fandom for me. That's probably the big key. After Babylon 5 was done, there was nothing that replaced it until 2010 and BBC Sherlock. That's right. That's when it came out. Yes, October 2010. I remember the day. <laughs> I can tell you what I was doing the very day. <laughs> oh um, so, yes. So I think I, I ended up more professionally writing in, in the intervening years. That's why I kind of wandered away from fandom. The shows I liked went away. And so I just started writing and doing that more professionally. And then... Sherlock hit and literally my stars changed. Everything about my life changed after BBC Sherlock. Oh, my God. Well, you know, that's a very big gap as far as um, fandom years, right? We talk about dog years and cat years and <laughs> fandom years. That's a long time. That is a long time. A lot of things change in the fandom scene between those, uh, those decades. Was it shocking to you? to discover how much things had changed when you came back in in 2010? I did not find it that different, possibly because the Sher You know what? I think this is exactly why I didn't find it that different. The Sherlock fandom really brought in older fans. So a lot of people were my age in the Sherlock fandom. So it didn't feel unusual, strange, left of center. I didn't feel on the back foot. Nothing felt confusing. I had already been, you know, spending my life, uh, I was a technical writer for a long time. So the whole computer thing was not like, oh, I'm confused. What is this, you know, live journal thing? I don't understand. <laughs> it was all normal to me, you know, yes. because that, my life was on computers professionally. And then all the Sherlock people were old. <laughs> I mean, they were my age. And, I'm and you old. found yourself right at home. Yes, yes, truly, truly. I met so many people through that fandom. At least four of them are like, I stay at their house, they stay at my house, friends to this day. And most of us are in our mid to late 50s. I do have friends that are younger in their 40s and so on. But the people that I met in the Sherlock fandom were from the start, more or less my age. So it never felt odd or like I didn't belong ever. And that's very lucky for me. You know, the fandom I fell back into fandom with looked like me. Yes. And how fortuitous for you, you know, that it wasn't this stumbling, awkward thing back into fandom, but it sounds like it just felt so natural. It very much did. Yeah. Like coming home almost. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's it's it was. Yes, it was very natural. It was, you know, you you walk along and you take a path and you're like, oh, this I recognize these flowers. I recognize this tree. It's grown since I was gone and the flowers maybe have spread wider in the field, but the field is, I recognize this field. And that's what for me fandom was when I got back into it. I recognize how people love this. I recognize how they write it, you know. So I, like I said, my, my world with fandom, I've been very, very lucky in so many ways that my experience has been vastly amazing because I was able to do the things I've been able to do, like travel. 
I'll tell you what, you go to London in the heyday of the Sherlock, the BBC Sherlock fandom, you'll never have an experience like it because London was the heartbeat for so many people and so many fans came to London for a week, for two weeks because they loved Sherlock so much. And I lived there at that time. So I got to meet all of them, <laughs> you know, so. Oh, oh my, so tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the magic of getting to meet fans in person, in real life, and how special and wonderful that is. Tell me more about those experiences. That sounds wonderful. I have to say, again, obviously, you need to do fandom in the way that brings you joy. But don't be shy about meeting people if you can, because, and I'll keep using this, this phrase, it can change your stars. Everything about my life changed when I started meeting fandom people. And I can list people who were like, I'm very shy, but I went to that one meetup or I met that one fan and now everything about my life is different. So meeting people, my point is, is you meet people who are like you, who have the same joy as you and joy together is magnified. So you love, say, Sherlock or Supernatural or Doctor Who, and then you meet somebody who loves those things. It's not even doubled. It's squared. And that feeds your soul. And then you do more or you believe more or you dream bigger. So meeting people in fandom for me was that. You know, I got to meet people whose stories I read, uh, got to meet people who read my stories, and that made me a better writer, that made me have more joy in the fandom. I was able to give it and get it. Meeting people in a fandom, if you can, even if it's quote unquote just online, I don't care if it's Skype or Zoom or whatever, it can change everything because you're meeting somebody who loves deeply what you love. And that's so empowering. I love that so much. I feel like I have been learning that lesson these last couple of years, uh -huh. how important relationships are. Yes. And that's one of the things I love about fandom. I love so many things about fandom, but that's one of the things that I love the best about it is because it is so conducive to building those relationships if we want to. We don't have to, of course, nobody has to. But if you want to, the opportunity is there. And you will learn, like I did, that building those relationships and keeping those relationships is everything. You talk about how it will change your whole life. And it will. It, it absolutely will. will. My yes. life is unrecognizable now. Three years later, when I finally started learning this lesson, I sometimes sit here and I'm like, I can't believe what my life looks like right now. And it all started with that willingness to form those relationships with people. And they've been some of the best relationships that I've ever had in my entire life. And fandom gave that to me and it gave that to you. And how beautiful is that? Mm -hmm. Yes. And you know what? If, you, if you're sitting there listening to this and you're saying, yes, I'm an introvert, this will never work for me. Most of fandom is introverted, you will find your fellow introvert who expresses that interior life the way you do. You know, you can tiptoe, you can tiptoe one person at a time until you find that person who loves what you love and expresses it how you do. And if you're an extrovert, you can find that. You will go to meetups, you will go to conventions, you will comment on every story you love 
or you will reply to every comment on your stories and you will find that as well. I think we can both probably say we sound like extroverts. I know that I am and I have found what I need in the fandom and I also have a lot of people who express themselves as introverts that are my friends and they have found their people, their group. So you can find what you, what you need and want if you want to reach out. Again, like you just said, chaos, you don't have to. Love what you love the way it brings you joy. But if you think you want to go a little further, you will be rewarded. Yes, I love telling people that you don't know what's on the other side of that door. But there's magic over there. <laughs> you know, there's gold in those hills, baby. Yes. yes, there really, really is. There are people who will encourage you, people who will let you know what your gifts are. Like, you know, I met an artist who she had started to draw for some of my stories. And she had an art degree, but she didn't really draw a lot since, you know, growing up, quote unquote. And once she got into fandom, once she started drawing just all the time for the pure joy of it, she now has, oh, I don't, I don't even know how many books with her artwork in it, you know, and fandom helped bring that to her because it encouraged her. It said, we love your work. We love what you do. And so she did more, you know, and literally in her case, somebody wandered by and saw her drawing poolside and said, oh, hey, are you an artist? Because I'm a writer and I, I need an artist for my book. So you just don't know where the magic will happen. But fandom will give you the courage to do whatever it is you love because they'll love it with you. Yes, they will. And you'll have this level of support that you won't be able to find nearly anywhere else. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, my God. I love this conversation, by the way. This is making me so, so happy. Okay, so I have more questions for you. Sure. <laughs> so you entered back in in 2010. And what I know about fandom in 2010 is that we were we were mostly hanging out on LiveJournal. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that's where people were, were mostly doing their thing. I know that in 2010, AO3 was still kind of a brand new thing. It had just entered beta in 2009. And so it was kind of <laughs> not quite uh, where we were all congregating at that time. But LiveJournal was in its heyday, sort of in that 2010-ish uh, area. And I... It's funny because I think that you remember a lot of the same things that I remember live journal. And then I'm sure you remember the strike throughs and you remember everybody like scattering to different places. You've seen Tumblr come up just like I've seen Tumblr come up. And now people are on Twitter, too. I mean, the ways I think that we communicate in fandom spaces these days, it's a very different scene than it was back then. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on those changes and those things that uh, that, are, that are the same and that are different? I will say the thing that is the same and I hope remains, and I hope people coming into fandoms recognize the beauty and the glory and the perfection that is archive of our own. Preach. Yes. We were scattered. You know, Live Journal was difficult because there was no way to find a thing you didn't sort of already know. It was difficult. You couldn't search LiveJournal. Plus, you know, you had... Anyway, LiveJournal was a little bit difficult. Fanfiction.net was, uh, I think, where a lot of people cut their teeth. And 
it was a little bit more chaotic than LiveJournal. So people, yeah, went from fanfiction.net to LiveJournal. LiveJournal made it hard to search. LiveJournal then got bought. LiveJournal did this, that, and the other thing. And then for me, I learned of AO3 in 2012 and that we have, you know, that it's still here 10 years later and is, it's like somebody gave you food or something. AO3 is everything that was missing and it's still here and it still offers so much of what every, I think every fandom needs and wants. And it's a place, it's a place we can go. And we know what's there and we know who's there and we know how to interact with them and we can be part of it all. So for me, the thing that has stayed the same is AO3 and I hope it remains there forever. And anybody who can donate, please do donate. It's run by volunteers. Okay. And it's a nonprofit. So yes, they make a lot of money and that money goes toward keeping it going. As for all the other stuff, Twitter and Tumblr and Dreamwith and Discord, you know, I think these are like rooms off. I consider them rooms off AO3. And, you know, we each find our other room that, that works for us, you know, day by day for, I don't know, live conversations or what have you. For me, I'm not in a lot of those places. I'm for some reason still on Tumblr and watching Twitter burn and not quite sure where to go after that. I'm not a huge fan of Facebook or Instagram. I really like the interactiveness of spaces. So it's still always going to be AO3 for me. I don't know. See what happens. See where everybody goes. You know, when Tumblr had their porn ban, everybody went to Twitter. And so I went to Twitter. Now, I guess it will shake out and we'll see where everybody from Twitter is going. Like the room, you know, like every people are breaking up into lots of little rooms. But where's the big room? I want to go to the big room. <laughs> Yes, I think that's on a lot of people's minds because, you know, for a long time, the room was, you know, live journal that that was the room. And then when that went down in flames, you know, I think everybody kind of thought for a while that it was going to be dream with. And I do know some people that went there, but not enough to sustain, you know, like it just I don't know. It just never happened the way it did with LiveJournal. I guess we saw a lot of people flock over to Tumblr. I'm late. I'm a late arrival to Tumblr. I've only had mine about three years. I love it. I think it's uh, really interesting and it's a great way to connect. And I enjoy seeing what people are excited about. Um, and it just makes me wonder, you know, at the back of my mind, okay, what's next? You know, yeah. like what, mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. happens after after this exactly? Because, you know, people say all kinds of things about the pros and the cons of Tumblr, and they like to point out the differences between that and LiveJournal. And you always talk to the older people who um, a lot of them will say, oh, I miss LiveJournal so much because, you know, I just felt closer to my uh, my group of people on live. So it's just very interesting to see the different ways that people remember past tools that we use to communicate <laughs> in fandom. And it's always interesting to kind of think about what's next as far as where we'll all end up, uh, you know, five, 10 years from now. That's why I hope AO3 remains because at least, you know, here's a root, here's, here's a root and you can have a bunch of little trees that grow off, you know, the main thing, but at least the main thing stays there. You know, the forest can grow up around the main tree. I hope AO3 remains the main tree because we can just always go back. I'm there still. I mean, I'll stay there still and keep publishing there, but yeah, I'm curious too, to see where we go 
after, not after AO3, but after say Twitter or Tumblr or whatever people are using to converse in real time. Yes, no, absolutely. And I echo your sentiments so hard with AO3. It's such a monolith. It's so beautiful that it's there. And I think of all the places, because of the reasons that you've already mentioned, it has the best chance of going forward. It has the best staying power of any place that I've seen in my lifetime. And I appreciate that. I'll tell you a quick story here. Back in the uh, late 90s, I was part of the Sentinel fandom. And so uh, about a month ago, I was doing research for the Sentinel, and I was trying to find all of the old fan fictions that I used to love. And I was heartbroken, Atlin, when I was trying to follow all of these old links that were posted on LiveJournal, because I would say at least... 60 to 75% of them were dead links at this point. And many of those fics were never ported over to AO3. And I was just heartbroken because these were fics that I remember so vividly reading in my early 20s. And I just remember loving them so much. And they were beautiful masterpieces. And they're just gone. Except, except, except. I'm glad you did check with AO3 because... I've put everything that I had published over on AO3, everything from LiveJournal. But you can sometimes, you know, somebody will have downloaded it, you know, somewhere. I've downloaded everything that I ever like fell in love with. So just see if somebody, you know, like, especially if it was one that everybody fell in love with, somebody's going to have it. Don't don't give up hope is what I'm trying to say. Yes. No, you are right. There is... um. There's actually this uh, this Tumblr dedicated to old school Sentinel fan fiction. And I've been thinking to myself, ah, I should contact them mm-hmm, on Tumblr mm-hmm. and see, hey, do you guys have, you know, an old PDF or a doc or something with this fan fiction? Because, yeah, it, it had been a while. That's that's what it was. It, it had been such a long time since I've even tried to find these fan fictions. And uh, and yeah, what a surprise it was to discover that, oh, man, so many of these are gone. And oh, my God. And it just it filled me with this brand new appreciation for AO3, you know, because unless the author removes that fan fiction themselves for whatever reason, and that's fine. But unless the author removes it themselves, that fan fiction is staying on AO3. And I don't ever have to worry that the site won't be there tomorrow. The stories will be there. And and they've made it so easy to download it. You can have a PDF. You can have an EPUB. You can have a Kindle file. You know, at first you might feel like, oh, somebody's going to steal. No, nobody's going to steal. Nobody's going to steal your work. I mean, nobody who you're trying to reach. You know, people who wander in the room who don't belong there. That's That's a different story. But I have saved so many stories that I fell in love with because AO3 also made that easy. I mean, you can copy and paste as well. If, you know, say LiveJournal or something, you find a story there. But yes, they've made it easy to archive your beloveds, you know. So that's the other, another brilliant boon of AO3. Oh, I agree with that. Now, this might be an unfair question. I know I would have a hard time answering this just because my memory sometimes is not the best. But I wanted to ask you anyway, do you remember any fix from your early years of fandom? 
either in the late 90s or in the 2000s. Were there any older fics from back in those eras that you remember that had long-term impacts for you? You mean before like 2010? Either in your Sherlock resurgence era or your late 90s era with Babylon 5 and X-Files. I'm just wondering if you had any experiences with those, you know, I think when we all kind of (laughs) start out in fandom or rejoin fandom, there are just those classic fics sometimes that we read that we just never forget because they're so pivotal to our own personal journeys in fandom. I was wondering if you had any of those. I honestly can't recall any from the earlier years. I have stories that I found beautiful or I was so amazed how I'm I'm constantly amazed because I've been a professional editor and writer for a really long time. I'm constantly amazed at the gifts people in fandom have. Like, do they know that they are publish quality? Like they are conventionally traditionally brilliant. And so those are the stories that constantly, I don't know, make me breathless for how amazing fandom is. And one story I can say, because I had read it so many times, because it had so much heart and so much humor, was Hyacinth Sky 747's What to Do When Your Flatmate is Homicidal. She started it, uh, I think, with like so many of us do. This will be short. And it ended up, I don't know, maybe being 60,000 words. She kept coming back to add to it. And it's got pathos. It has silly humor. It has funny humor. It has romance. It has heart and sadness. It's just an astonishing story. And I've always, when I read stuff like that, I always want to find the person and be like, do you know how good you are? Please. And not everybody wants to publish, but if you do, please publish. (laughs) Right, right. And couldn't you help them with that? I mean, in your line of work, I suspect you could. I actually have. I have published some people's like uh, uh, stories for the very first time. So actually, a lot of Improbable Press's first books were directly from fandom people, either converting a story or just writing a new story. But let me tell you about that. That's why I say not everybody wants to publish is you find out it's a lot harder than you think. It's a lot slower than you think. And it's not going to make you rich. I mean, I suppose if you, you know, Penguin picks up something you've written and and promotes it worldwide. But even then, as we know from that recent uh, merger situation, according to, I don't know whether if it was Hatchet saying, oh yeah, most of our writers sell 12 books. You know, one of the big five is, don't know if they were lying just because they didn't want to, I don't know, be caught out. But According to them, most of their mid-list writers don't sell a lot, don't sell more than a couple of dozen books. So it's a weird thing to realize for anyone, much less a fandom person who maybe didn't think that they'd ever publish. You know, you have to really want to. And a lot of people don't realize until they try that they don't want to. They want the beauty of 
the less pressure, and I, I mean less pressure just because there's no deadline, not less good. Fandom work is brilliant. It is not inferior. And I do this for a living. I will take no comments on this matter. It's not inferior ever that, that the stories are worse than published works. They are not. If anything, I have read far better stories of fan fiction than I have read in between covers of books. But my point being is that um, it's hard work and fandom makes it easy because there is no deadline and you get feedback chapter by chapter so you know what you're doing right because people praise it and you're like, oh, I'm going to lean heavily, heavier into that. I must be good at that. So publishing is great if you want to publish, but fan fiction is easier emotionally speaking. Not easier as a writer because we all know it's writing is hard, good work. I wandered really far afield there. I apologize. No, that was perfect. And thank you so much for what you said about fan fiction writing. One of the many reasons why I wanted to have this platform to talk about fan fiction was because I've always suspected the same thing that you just expressed, mm -hmm. that fan fiction is not, in fact, inferior at all. I read a lot, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I will tell you that some of the most beautiful things I've ever read in my entire life have been brilliant fan fiction. Yep. Some of the best lines I've ever come across that made me feel so human mm -hmm. were fan mm -hmm. fiction. Yes. It's just a genre, just like yes. there are lots of genres Thank out there and you. it doesn't make it inferior Thank at all. You. And I think that's one of the stereotypes that I love pushing back against the most is that people outside of fandom spaces love to disparage fan fiction as something poor quality and the stories are full of holes and blah, 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 blah. You're only going to say that if you don't know. That's what I was going to say. How to tell me you don't, you've never read fan fiction without telling me you've never read fan fiction. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Because that that's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. If you've never actually dove in and read any fan fiction and that's all you have to say about it, then, mm -hmm. you know, we all know where you're coming from because like, it's not true. Yes. And there's so much ignorance in that in do you understand how many famous people you read that started with fan fiction? For example, do you understand how many stories, legendary stories out there are real person fic or are literally? I just recently learned through an essay that will appear in a book about fandom that Improbable is putting out in 2023. I just found out that Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet was a fan fiction of a fan fiction of a fan fiction of an original story also called Romeo and Juliet. So there were four different versions, three, sorry, three different versions of Romeo and Juliet before Shakespeare wrote his exact same named fic of those stories. So it's like you literally don't know what fan fiction is if you say it's no good. You, the, this is just your ignorance, I don't know, stripping off and frolicking naked in the room. You don't know what you're talking about. And the, the real key there is, I don't have to talk to you. I don't have to convince you. They, they have said the same thing about any genre. 
mysteries, romance, science fiction. That's garbage. It's all, you know, the only yes. thing. Yeah. So it's like, I don't need to have the conversation. Go diddle with your people who think the same thing. Go in your room and talk amongst yourselves. I'm not conversing with you. You will not be quote unquote convinced and you're boring. We don't entertain those types of opinions here. <laughs> well, it's, they're not, they're uninformed and they're not seeking to learn anything. They simply want to sound, I don't know, sassy or smart. And I don't, I disagree with you. So I'll just go talk to somebody who loves what I love. Since you hate it, why do I want to speak with you? I don't like NASCAR. So I wouldn't walk into a room of a full of NASCAR people and go, NASCAR sucks and expect anybody to be nice to me. You know, right. I have no right. business harshing on your gig, you know, so go and enjoy NASCAR and I hope you love it. And I'm going to go to the cafe next to the NASCAR track and have a coffee. You know, it's just, you know, nobody needs to destroy what other people love. Yeah, exactly. I've never quite understood the impulse some people have to publicly shame other people for the things that they love that are absolutely harmless. They're not harming anybody. And so like, why? Why do you feel the need to call other people out on their joy? Yeah. What yeah, does yeah. that do for you exactly? <laughs> I just don't understand it. Yeah. Neither do we have to understand it. Basically, I love that concept of instead of, I don't know, facing the naysayer, the racist, the, the homophobe, the whatever, because, you know, generally a person who walks into a room and says foul things is not ready to have a conversation. Instead of having that conversation, turn around and look at the people they just insulted and made feel bad. You talk with them. You know what I mean? Help bring them up. Give them the support they need because that terrible person who says, you know, I don't know, fan fiction is just for, I don't know, chicks and chicks can't write. I'm not talking to them. I'm going to turn around to the, I don't know, the sister they just said that to. And I'm going to say, you know why they're wrong? Come here, come here, come here. We're going to go have a talk about why they are so wrong and why your story is great. And here's some people who are going to love it. Yes, yes. And that's why I appreciate the fact that we have so many older people still in fandom who have the rocks to do yeah. that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially for the young people. I hear this sentiment among younger people in fandom a lot. And I think a lot of it is just age, probably, because we were probably all there at some point. But I hear a lot of people who are younger in fandom who still struggle with those feelings of shame. Shame that, oh, I'm involved in fan fiction and, you know, that's a shameful thing to be involved in because it's just not good writing. Or shame that they're spending so much time doing something that they love, but they feel like they shouldn't love mm -hmm. it or they shouldn't mm -hmm. be spending time there. And I think it is very important for those of us who have the life experience to be able to metaphorically put our arms around those folks and say, there's nothing wrong with this. Don't feel that shame. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. You're doing fine. And one day you're going to be us frolicking and just having the best times of our lives. And 
nobody is going to remember, you know, 20 years from now that some somebody said they didn't like your fan fiction or somebody said you should feel ashamed mm-hmm. for writing fan fiction. It's just, it's ridiculous. So my point is that I am so appreciative always of the older generations that we have in fandom because I know that I benefited greatly when I was younger in fandom from my elders who gave me such great advice, who taught me how to be in fandom spaces and just imparted so much wisdom. My friends and I, we refer to the older generation so affectionately as the OGs of fandom, the original gangsters, because you guys are just so amazing. And the things that were accomplished by the older generation in fandom are legendary. I wanted to get your thoughts on that, actually, because I saw you participate recently. It probably wasn't recent. I saw it recently on a Tumblr post, and it was a Tumblr post talking about older people in fandom. I think somebody younger in fandom may have been a little snickerty about their opinions on older people still being in fandom. And then you had some really thoughtful responses from older people in fandom who are still here who had some things to say about that. I appreciated that because I love the OGs. Like, you guys have my heart always. And I just wanted to know, are there any words that you'd like to say about older folks in fandom to older folks in fandom? And is there anything you'd like to also say to the younger folks as well? First off, I think... Fandom is in its way ageless. There was a Sherlock Holmes fandom when Arthur Conan Doyle was still writing his stories. William Gillette famously put a play, a Sherlock Holmes play, wrote and starred in a Sherlock Holmes play when Arthur Conan Doyle was still alive because he loved Sherlock Holmes. So fandom isn't really an age thing. But yes, there have been people, and most notably in that thread you're talking about, that had Diane Duane and Neil Gaiman in it, weighing in, Neil with his usual one or two words and Diane Duane a little bit longer, of, we have always been here. We started here. And they didn't say this, but you know their names because they started in fandom. So, ha ha, how dare you say people age out? Who is writing what you're reading? Do you think it's an 18-year-old person who is writing about, say, I don't know, depression and loss and healing and grief and healing from grief? It is not generally going to be the 18-year-old whose fic you fell in love with. It's going to be the fandom old who is a professional writer now. That's another reason why fan fiction can so often be so magical It's being written by professional writers who write it professionally. They write for a living. Diane Duane writes for a living. Neil Gaiman writes for a living. Both started in fandom. So where is this gate you want to put? There is no gate. This is an open field. Where are you randomly trying to put a gate when the whole field is open? You know, so... I guess my thing is, there is no age to fandom. We will always have old people in fandom because we were young people once and we started. We came in when we were 14 or 15 and we didn't leave because why do you leave joy? Who benefits from you leaving something that brings you joy? So if somebody says, aren't you ashamed to be here as that original poster did, 
what's to be ashamed about loving something? You know, as people point out to say the guy who loves NASCAR and has his favorite driver's clothing, wears the whole everything as the football player who, you know, has a helmet for their favorite team. Nobody told them to be ashamed. So why are you telling me to be ashamed? Of course, I'm not going to be. If it's an 18 year old who's legitimately saying it, it's like, well, you know, good luck, kid, grow up. But no, seriously, there's no reason to leave. I don't know. Why would you ever leave a party? This is a party. Why am I leaving? <laughs> yes. All yes. my favorite friends are here. All my favorite food <laughs> is here. I, I know where the bathrooms are. I mean, you know, why am I leaving this party? What's in it for me to leave the party? Nothing. So don't leave the party is what I'm saying. Yes. Well, and you know, the fandom olds are the ones that started the party. Yes. It's their party. It's their party. And you wandered in and said, are you still here? And it's like, you're in my foyer, child. I know. And you just peed on the carpet. Get off the lawn. Yes. Don't make me squirt you with this hose. As sometimes I think, though, people are doing it just because they want attention. They want people to come out of the woodwork and say, and you know what else? That's sad because, yes, for some people, any attention is better than none. And, you know, it's like, kid, nobody's going to remember you. They're going to remember the people who replied. There's a better way to participate than this. So I uh, don't know if I answered your question. No, you did. You did. And, you know, I love what you said there. I was thinking as you were saying it that... As strange as it is that some people feel the need to get attention that way, mm -hmm. in a strange, perverse way, I suppose, I enjoy seeing threads like that because, uh, you know, we were we were talking before the recording and I was saying I have now entered this. Uh, I've crossed the threshold, I think, here to fandom auntie status. I'm not OG status. I can't claim that yet. But fandom auntie, absolutely. Right. And I take such heart and such hope every time that I see you guys talking about that topic in these threads on Tumblr. Like it makes me feel so good to know that there is a way this is the way that you can stay. You don't have to leave the party. Like you said, you know, we're all staying and we're all here. And we're all here also to help, like with the younger folks. Like we want you to come to us. We want you to ask us questions and seek that wisdom and learn from us. Like we're here for that, you know? And so uh, I just wanted to thank you and all of the other OGs out there that like show us that way because it means so much to me and it means so much to a lot of us. I know that I can speak for all of the friends that I know when I say that we just love the OGs so much and we can't wait to be OGs ourselves one day. <laughs> and, and we want you here. We want you all here and are so happy that you are here. So thank you. Thank you so, so much for that. I wanted to go back to Sherlock here a little bit because we want to talk uh, a bit about your your fan fiction, Minutia. I started reading Minutia a while ago. You've been working on this fic like forever. It's been a really long time. But uh, it, it is a Sherlock fic, which I love. I'm so glad that we get to talk about Sherlock here a little bit because I, I love Sherlock. I entered Sherlock late, I think 2000. 
I don't know, 15 is when I discovered oh, wow. it for the first time. Yeah, uh-huh. like I'm I'm late to all of the fandom parties. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Like I'm never the first one there. But it sounds like you were, you, you know, you were talking earlier about your experience with coming back into fandom in 2010 because of Sherlock. And it sounds like there was something about Sherlock that just captured your imagination in a really special, unique way. I was wondering what that thing was for you. We were talking again before you started recording about how fandoms, as we're talking about them, tend to be uh, women-dominated. And we tend to create as opposed to men who tend to curate, in part because we don't see ourselves or what we desire in stories that are currently told. And so I think most fandoms... Women enter it because they want to fix the story because, well, you've killed somebody that I really like, or you didn't include, I don't know, a neurodivergent character or a black character or a gay character or or a woman or whatever. So for me, the Sherlock fandom, I was really fascinated to see how people were trying to make sense of this character. He, The way it's written in the TV show, he is probably neurodivergent. He is probably gay. He is probably a lot of things, but none of it was particularly spoken. And so fandom is like, we're going to take it from here. And I then had some thoughts about what I was reading in fandom. And I'm like, you know what? You know what? You know what? (laughs) Here's the thing I think. And then I just couldn't stop writing. You know, this is like you start to read all the stuff and you're like, but, but, but also, also, you know, you get like that hyper, hyper kid thing. And, 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 and you know what else, you know, and um, I ended up writing so much, so often because we all were like, hey, 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 here's a thing I also think. And here's another thing I also think. And because the fandom tended to be older people, I don't know why the Sherlock fandom brought people who were. 30 and 40 and 50, whereas I hadn't quite experienced that, say, in the Star Wars fandom or such, but it did. And so you got these deep thoughts, you know, these deep stories, these great concepts, and it just makes you want to be part of that. And then there were so many people meeting. I I ended up visiting London, and so I met so many people there that were like, and and you know what else? And we became friends. And then I ended up moving to London. And so it just, there was this tremendous cascade because, uh, I think in part because the fandom was older. So it was already well-versed in what magic could be made with fan fiction. And so they did it. They just stepped in and they made magic. And you're like, holy mud balls, this is amazing. I want to be part of this you know, and it was very welcoming and it was very fresh and it was bubbling because there was two years between series. Yes, it sounds like the show pulled the veterans in. People who had been writing for a long time, like really heavy hitters, who came in and were just energized by what Mm -hmm. they were saying. Yes, energized. There you go. You can't, you know, you can't make yourself fall in love. So when a fandom goes away or the show ends or the people kind of wander from the room, sometimes you look around and you're like, well, there's nothing out there because you didn't fall in love with anything, you know, because you can't really force that. And for some reason, people really fell in love with Sherlock. 
like it just chest punch, you know, here it is, you know, in, in America, I don't know really quite, I mean, sorry, in the UK, I don't know how they showed the episodes, like if it was week by week by week, but I think in America, it was more or less one right after the other. So we had everything all at once and then nothing for two years. And I know it was that way in the UK. So you had to make every, you had to fill in all the gaps. And that was amazing. You know, when people are hungry, they will feed each other, you know, and we did. And it was astonishing. And so much grew out of that. I ended up getting a degree at the age of 50 because of fandom. I ended up publishing my first book at 50 because of fandom. I ended up the commissioning editor of a press because of fandom. Literally everything about my life changed and it was because, directly because of fandom. So anybody who tells you that it, you're wasting your time is a liar, <laughs> you know, be in fandom. I love that. That is wonderful, right? I love that sentiment. Don't let anyone tell you that you are wasting your time. They're lying. They are outright <laughs> lying because I know for a fact, I am not going to name names because that's their story to tell. But I can sit here and tell you of people who met their one true love, who published their first book, who did amazing things because they stepped into fandom and fandom rose up to meet them. So it will never be a waste of time. Anything that brings you joy isn't but it can bring you amazing, amazing, amazing changes in your life. Things you don't even know are going to come. And there they are. So just don't even converse with the people who say you're wasting your time. That's childish, whatever. Nope, you're wrong. I know people who it changed their entire world for the better. So neener, neener. You don't know what you're talking about. I mean, if they're going to be childish, neener, neener, you're wrong. <laughs> Right. And you're living proof of that. Yes. You are living proof of that, that magic can happen. It just goes back to that whole magic concept. Any place where you have that opportunity to create meaningful relationships with other genuine, wonderful people, you never know what's going to happen to you. Yes. Magical things can happen. And I love that. I love that that happened for you in Sherlock as you're speaking about the very unique makeup of the fandom with the age range and, you know, just speaking about how excited and energized people were. I can absolutely see how this was a seeding ground for wonderful things to happen mm -hmm. in people's lives, you included. And I love that. That's one of the most beautiful fandom stories I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> I love that. Well, it's uh, not everybody has the opportunities that I've had because I don't have children and I am older. So I have, you know, more savings. You know, I can go to London and experience, you know, fandom. Uh, so in part, you know, I'm a special case just because of the age and the, you know, that kind of thing and the opportunities that, that I was able to take advantage of. But most everybody probably can find a person near them in fandom and I hope meet them. And it is a wonderful thing. Maybe that first person, not so much. You didn't, I don't know, somehow you didn't hit it off. But do keep trying because you've already self-selected. You know, uh, fandom is great for self-selection. We all already accept, like say, I, I write a lot of 
LGBT positive stories. So I already know the people who read my stuff are not going to be homophobic. Their chances are very good. They're not going to be misogynist. They're not going to be a lot of things. So it's self-selecting for people who are a lot like you already. And that can create such a synergy of encouragement and joy and yeah, synergy and joy where you can go and experience things that expand you both because you're both on the same page. So again, fandom, if you can meet somebody, try. Even, even if you're shy, fandom is full of shy people and you can find another person who expresses themselves the way you do, you know, and you can find like you and I, chaos, we both sound very extroverted and we, you know, you find those people, you know, if you're that, that type of person, you will find it. You will find what you need. You will. And I love that encouragement. Thank you so much, because I think a lot of people out there do need to hear that. I certainly hear that from a lot of people that, oh, you know, I feel very shy and introverted and things like that. And it's hard for me to make connections. And I get that. I totally get where people are coming from when they say that. But the opportunities are still there, even as introverted people who feel shy to make those connections anyway. And when we put ourselves out there and push through the fear, right? That's it. That's it. That's it. That's when it happens. You know, it's funny that you use the word synergy, too, because synergy <laughs> was a word that came to mind as I was reviewing Minutia again to prepare for this today, because I know that you did end up having a lot of um, uh, input from the Sherlock community as you were writing this. This is an incredible piece. I'm going to go ahead and let you tell us what Minutia is about. I don't think I would be able to explain it as well as you can. But why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what Minutia is? And then what made you want to write it in the first place? Minutia is, every chapter stands alone. It's, for lack of a better term, it's fictional facts about Sherlock Holmes and John Watson. And as I imagine them, based off the BBC Sherlock and fandom, that they are a couple. So it's basically bite-sized facts about both of them and how they interrelate to the world and to each other and to the job, as it were. So it is ever, ever evolving. It's like over 100,000 words, simply because tomorrow, tomorrow's fictional fact may be, uh, I don't know, the 15 kinds of latte Sherlock Holmes drank for a case and how that meant Mrs. Hudson had to deal with him and John had to deal with him uh, or not deal with him interact with him and Molly and so on. So it's an ever evolving thing. 15, you know, things I know about them that I just made up kind of thing. So that's, that's why it's been going for 10 years because it's never ending. Here's a new thing I just learned, quote unquote, about Sherlock Holmes today. And so I'll write, you know, a thousand words. Here's a, a you know, and then two weeks from now, here's a thousand words I learned about how Molly and John go Christmas shopping. I don't know. It's just bite-sized things that I make up about the character and what's brilliant about it, why I recommend everybody do it. It's how you learn about your own characters. Sit there. You've got an original character. Sit there and tell me, do they have a credit card? What kind of shoes are they wearing? What do they do when they walk on the beach? You know, tell me minutia about your character. And that's how you learn who they are and what you love about them. So that's what minutia became. Here's what I love about them. Here's what I've made up that is a fact about them. 
And it's so enjoyable because we can always, always learn about our characters, about the characters we love. We can always make up something new about them, how they broke their cell phone, how they, again, take their latte, you know, and it's just fun to share that with other people. Here's what I think. And people go, oh, that's true. I bet you that's true. You know, so anyway, that's what that story is. That's why it's 10 years old. That's why it's so long, because it can be told forever, because we can always learn new things about anything we love, including a character. I love that you framed that as a potential writing exercise. You can absolutely do that with OCs, as you've just suggested, or even just like fictional characters you're pulling from canon for fan fiction purposes as well, like you did here with Sherlock and John Watson. One of the things that I love about this is we're learning these facts from the other's point of view, you know, in a lot of these because you've got these two in your story who are romantically connected. And, uh, you know, I've been in several relationships long term. And I can tell you, right, from like real life experience that you do when you've been with somebody that long and that intimately, you do. If you sit there long enough, you will think of all of these things, you know, and the way that you describe them in your story it's not just these facts, but they are told in such an endearing, emotional way. The way that a loved one would describe you and the things that you love and the things that you do on a daily basis that you probably don't even realize that you do. And it's just this beautiful thing where, you know, if you were to sit there with your own real life partner and try this exercise, you would probably come up with a lot of the same things that you find in Minutia because uh, that's that's what it is. And I just love that. I love, like you said, it's just this beautiful way of getting to know these two characters on a much deeper level than you would in a different sort of fic. So I absolutely have always appreciated Minutia for that. I was wondering, like, you have like over 80 chapters at this point. It's ongoing. I think the last chapter that I read said you had 436 things each, right? Which is so incredible. And so it made me wonder, how do you go about thinking up or deciding what things you're going to write about? Because that's a lot of things, right? And so when you're thinking, okay, what's the next thing that I'm going to come up with? How do you get there? to decide what it is you're going to tackle next. That's the beauty of fandom again. People inspire you. One thing that sticks in my head is somebody said, when did they, you know, because I write them as gay, uh, somebody said, when did they know? When did each man know he was gay? So people ask me things. How are they when they go Christmas shopping? So folks are always asking things. And But one of my favorite stories is Verity Burns is I'm an amazing Sherlock writer. She wrote, uh, I believe it's five novels um, in fan fiction. And she is my close friend. And we went, and I have to have my coffee so hot. Like a latte has to be burning hot. And she, she said something. She said, I can imagine you writing a minutia about this, where Sherlock is asking for his coffee burning hot. And John says, burn him. I don't care. Just burn him. I'm a doctor. I'll deal with it later. <laughs> And a minutia just fell out of my hands because that's exactly that's I, I had him say exactly that. And it, it's just somebody inspires you. Somebody in real life says a thing and you're like, oh, that is hysterical. I'm going to put it in his mouth, her mouth, and we're going to go from there. So the whole thing keeps going because somebody says 
well, what about this? I want to know this, you know, and, and you're like, well, now I want to know this. You know, I'm just sitting here looking at my backpack and it's like, okay, you know, did one of them ever have a backpack? And what, what, like as a kid, what was their sacred thing they always carried around in their backpack, you know, with the idea that maybe it was a toy or something. And I'm like, well, now I have to know. So I have to sit here and think, okay, they each had little boy backpacks. What was in it? You know what I mean? I don't know until somebody asks and then somebody asks and, you know, you start to invent because you're, we're writers, you know? So that's, that's how I add to it. Is somebody asks me something, I do something and I'm like, you know what? I know how they would do this too. And so I write about that. So this goes back to that, uh, that synergistic energy we were alluding to earlier, where this is, of course, this is your project, but it is also, in a sense, a community project. Yes. You've yeah, garnered yeah, yeah. a lot of inspiration from the community. Yes, yes. And that's what, that's what all creation is. And anyone who tells you that something was created in a vacuum doesn't know about creation. Everything. Everything is a bunch of people. Like I told you, the Romeo and Juliet was fan fiction of fan fiction of fan fiction. Okay. He did not create that in a vacuum. He did not create Richard III in a vacuum. That's real person fic right there. He just decided, I don't like this part and I don't like this part. And he changed those parts. So nothing is not inspired by something else. Yes. Nothing comes from nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It all comes from something. I love how fan fiction is at least honest. Yes, yes, thank you. And somebody wrote, uh, I love this thing, uh, Neil Gaiman. Somebody wrote Neil Gaiman and said, I don't like fan fiction. I'm really against it. What do you as a writer think? And yes, I'm making fun of them with a voice. And Neil Gaiman replied, well, I won my first Yugo for a Cthulhu Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. So I'm pretty for it. He got his first Yugo for a Lovecraft Arthur Conan Doyle fan fiction. Yes, he did. I think I saw that post and he was like, I don't plan on giving my Hugo back. So I'm going to have to say that I'm for fan fiction. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, whomever you want to point to, chances are good. They were inspired by somebody else and they may have outright fanficked them or, or imitated that person's voice and so on. So, you know, again, the person who says the negative thing absolutely doesn't know what they're talking about. Go learn something. I'm not your teacher. I'm going to go talk to these people who know better. So, yes, it's a collaboration. I love that because, you know, we've been talking over an hour now about the collaborative nature of fandom and the relationships and just the synergistic energy. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's it's wonderful to see that it has culminated here in your fic, Minutia. I've had so much fun reading through all of the things because they're all different and they're all unique and they're all just, I don't know, endearing and heartwarming to read. And I have loved all of them. I was wondering if you have a favorite thing because I was going through all of the things. And I think I loved the one the most about Sherlock experiencing homesickness when John went away and not realizing that that's what he was feeling, right? Until John came home and then he realizes, oh, that sick feeling I had in the pit of my stomach, that was homesickness because John was not here. And that was my favorite one. I was wondering if you have a favorite thing that you've written in here for Minutia so far. I will say sort of yes, indirectly in that. When you write things, 
you sometimes teach yourself things because you've put it in their mouth and then you're like, that's true. And I personally didn't know so many things until I put them in a character's mouth, specifically these two characters. And then I'm like, oh my word. So I have to say indirectly, not a particular chapter, but just how I keep learning about being human through writing about these fictional humans. About, I had one, uh, this wasn't actually in Minutia, um, it was in a different story, but about trying that it is our superpower. All we have to do is try, just try. You know, and there, there's so much comes from the effort of just that one T word, that tiny, tiny word. And I put that in John Watson's mouth. And then I was like, huh, huh. And that might be just before I went and got my first, you know, went back to college at the age of 50. You know, just try, just try. And it came from writing it down. I can't answer the question about one particular chapter. It's just the whole thing has taught me about being a human being. And that has happened over the course of these 10 years in this one story that I was gifted with the privilege of writing for 10 years. Because of how it's structured, it can keep going on and on. So I can keep learning from it. Oh, and I love that. That is the perfect answer. That is so, so perfect. Storytelling. And fan fiction is included, right, in the storytelling process. Storytelling tells us what's true. It helps us in that process of discovering what's true. And more than anything, storytelling has helped me understand what it means to be human. Exactly like you said, that means so much to me because nothing comes close to the written word for me when it comes to like discovering internally as a human being. It's just the most magical thing in the world. And fan fiction has absolutely done that for me in ways that I can't even begin to accurately describe for people because it's such an internal, personal thing, you know. But I absolutely think that that's 100% true, that you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about being human in the act of writing. And also on the other side, from us as the readers, when we see something in somebody's writing that's true, it stays with us forever. I'll always be grateful for that. Well, and it stays with us because humans are writing this human story. Even if you're writing about aliens, it doesn't matter. You're, you're writing from what you know in that you understand desire and grief and healing and joy. And, you know, so you can put that into the mouths of your Martian or what have you, you know, and the person who's reading it Someday could be a Martian, but right now it's a fellow human being. And so you're able to speak to them. You know, I see you or, uh, you know, yeah, I see you. I too am neurodivergent. And so I've written this character that way. And the people I've written for them love them. So this can happen. I believe this for both of us. Do you know what I mean? It can give you strength when right now you may not have it. Yes. And I think that also goes back to what you said earlier about older people. In writing, Mm -hmm. you mentioned something that I have believed for a really long time, that it is the older people with their vast life experience that have written the things that have touched me the most and helped me the most. Because those vast life experiences, you are dealing with loss and grief and who am I and, you know, what it means to get old. 
all of these different things. And oh my God, to be seen in those ways, right? By people who know because they've experienced them already. I don't even have the words. I don't have the words, but there's something so magnificent about that. So again, for those reasons, I um, I love <laughs> when we have people with vast life experiences coming in here and writing their fan fictions because uh, it touches us on the other side as the readers so much. If we're all of us lucky, we get to get old. And these stories can tell, yes, the 18-year-old who thinks maybe that being 38 is old, these stories can tell them, you know, you two will be blessed to get here. And when you're here, here's what it looks like. It's still great. You know, you can create something, you can do something, you know what? I mean, we, by the fact that we are older, we get to say, here's what it looks like from here. It's fun. You know, I've made the best friends of my life from here and so on. So don't fear it. You know, whatever they tell you that you're too old because they want to sell you something, they're liars. And that's what fan fiction can, you know, help people understand. Those those folks who just said, well, your lips aren't plump enough and your ankles are fat, they're liars. So come along. We don't care about your lips or your ankles. <laughs> we do not. Yes, yes, yes. No, we, we all benefit <laughs> from people on the other side showing us these stories and saying this is the way. I just, I love that. I love that. Now, I have a couple more questions for you about Manusha, and I'll kind of combine these. I was wondering if you had learned any unexpected things working on the same fic for 10 years running, because that's quite an accomplishment. It's, that's a long time to work on the same project. And in that same vein, I'm also wondering, you know, I talk to a lot of people who experience frustration with working on whips, unfinished projects and things like that. They struggle to stay inspired sometimes. So I was wondering if you've learned anything unexpected. And did you ever experience that same frustration with staying inspired with Minutia as you worked on it for so many years? I'll answer the end first in that I'm fortunate with the character of Sherlock Holmes. He's, oh gosh, what, 130 some odd years old. So he's evergreen and there's always something you can write about him because you can set him in canon. You can bring him up to date, like, I don't know, where Basil Rathbone's Sherlock was. You can write him contemporary. So there's there's a sort of never a lack of relevance for the character. So you can always find something in that way. With works in progress, I have found for me, in terms of the frustration, is the more you go back to like find the inspiration in the story, the more you just keep tweaking that old stuff. So I don't tend to, with a work in progress, minutia is a little bit different because of its structure, but with a work in progress, start where you need to start. Because the more we go back, the more we get bogged down in what we already wrote. And we keep wanting to fix something back there. So for me, I've learned not to do that. Yes, occasionally you have to, like, where did I leave this off? I don't even remember. Sure, sure, you do have to read backward. But I have found, just sit down and start. Even if you do end up having to stop and go backward, at least you took that uh, first leap, you know? 
You've got uh, three paragraphs on the page. Maybe you feel like they're garbage, but at least you started the next chapter. So for the works in progress, yeah, it can feel like, why did I even start this thing, man? <laughs> right, right, right. But moving forward, that sounds like the key here for you is moving forward. I had a friend, she had, she wanted to write a Sherlock Holmes play and she had the first two acts. And I said, so what happens? What's happening with the third act? She goes, well, every time I try and start the third act, I have to go back and I have to read a few things. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean you have to go back? Yeah, well, I end up going back and then I'll read it for an hour and then I'll just it. And it's like, okay, next time we meet, I want you to have started the third act. Do not read the first two acts. And she had never thought to try that is my point, is that she kept going back thinking to inspire herself for the third act, she had to read the first and seconds. And she didn't. And the next time I saw her, she had finished her play. She's a genius anyway. But she just kept, you know, kind of tripping herself because she would just go and tweak one and two, one and two, one and two. I have to make them perfect, but she didn't finish it yet. So I think Neil Gaiman or, or some other, you know, famous person has said, finish it first and worry if it's any good later. You know, just, just finish it. Finish your work in progress and you can tweak it. Yes, it's going to read like garbage. Ooh, this, this, this I do know, he said. The days when it was really hard to write and the days when it was really easy, once the story or the book is published, I can't tell those days apart. So, you know, if chapter two felt like pulling teeth and chapter one flew, he can't later on tell which one was the really hard one to write. So just do it. It feels horrible. It feels like garbage. Later on, it won't. That's exactly what I was hoping for was just some encouragement on people who experience that because I, I hear that a lot from people who are working on ongoing projects that they're just like, oh, it's frustrating sometimes and you get tripped up and I can see exactly what you're saying. Getting stuck in the past can keep you sometimes from moving forward. And that's true in life as yeah. it is, I suppose, in writing as well, right? And I love that. I absolutely love that. Were there any other unexpected things that you learned writing-wise with Manusha? Just that it's so astonishingly applicable to other characters. It's like a, a, like a little present. You sit down and you're like, well, what do they think of Halloween? You know, and you may never write a a Halloween section for your original character, but suddenly you learned that you like horror stories. Do you know what I mean? It's just like this, this wonderful tentacle that can just inspire you and it can be minutia. It can be tiny. Does your original character like ants? You know, like literally go tiny or big. You know, what was the first funeral they went to? And... It, it, the, the, the possibilities of using it for endless creativity is the biggest thing I got out of Minutia, out of just trying to learn about characters you love. This is a brilliant way to try and learn. And I'm sure I didn't invent it. Everybody's, I've read the things, interview your character or do this or do that. But for me, this is how I learned about these characters. I just started writing little things I knew about them and... I learned that it's amazing and it's never ending. It's never ending. They will grow old or I will grow old and I will put words in their mouth. Do you know? So I will never, never not have something to say. 
because I'm alive and I'm breathing and today is different from yesterday. So that's what I've learned from Minutia. I love that. I absolutely love that. Again, I love this idea of using this as a writing exercise because as I'm sitting here thinking about like, ooh, how could I use this same thing? It feels to me because I struggle so bad sometimes with writing. I feel like a very slow writer, right? And this feels like a low pressure way of still being creative and still writing something. But these little things that you come up with in Minutia, they're small. They're like one paragraph each, you know? I can finish a paragraph or two, you know, a day and feel like, oh, look, I've accomplished something, yes. right? I've learned something either about this character or myself or both. And I think that that's beautiful. I think that that could actually help a lot of people, you know, in their writing exercises. So that's perfect. Yes. And when you write that one paragraph a day, let's just say it was 150 words and you do it I don't know, 300 days of the year. That's what? That's 45,000 words. You've got a novella at the end of the year. And all you did was just, and, and you, you know, you do have a novella. If you have it about one character, say, again, Sherlock Holmes, somebody may want to publish that. Do you know what I mean? You have an actual book. Yes, any, any book, you know, a whole big novel can be written 100, 150 words at a time. But yes, especially minutia is so welcoming to your lunch break, <laughs> you know, your small thought about somebody. And, you know, the longer we talk, the more I think the next chapter of Minutia is going to be how John and Sherlock are different when they're interviewed. Ooh, ooh, I like that. There would be so many differences there. <laughs> yeah. So many. And it would depend on who's interviewing them. And, mm -hmm. you know, right. you know, was it a morning interview? Was it an evening interview? Are they older? Are they younger? Uh, is a case just solved? Is a case not, you know, a, a bad case? You know what I mean? Yeah, the answers are. And I always like to go away from what is knee jerk. Oh, yeah, Sherlock will always be rude. Well, <laughs> what's the case when he's not? When has right. he been extraordinarily polite? You know, I mean, anyway, so... You have inspired the next chapter, and I am going to say that you inspired it, and it's dedicated to you. I will be there. So excited to read that next part of Minutia, because that has been one of the best parts about the Minutia project that you've done. You're right that you don't just gravitate to the knee-jerk reactions for these characters, but the things that you've written about them have been so surprising to me, right? And I've read a lot of Sherlock Holmes uh, fan fiction over the years, and it's been delightful to have like some of my expectations subverted in a way that I feel like I've learned something new about these characters or seen a different perspective or side of them that I never would have been exposed to had we not gone through this whole exercise of going through all of these little minutia things. And just, I don't know, it's just, it's been such a fun, fun thing. I can't wait to see more. <laughs> well, and this is what fan fiction gives us too. People will always kind of, not always, but often look behind the door that traditional storytellers don't open, you know, so they will tell you, um, I don't, you know, nothing's popping to mind, but they will tell you what dog or some, uh, they will tell you the things that you don't put in a TV show because I don't know, people won't tune in or you think they won't tune in. That's what fan fiction always is. It is telling us the subverting 
expectations because uh, we didn't know to have them because, you know, the medium of television is only two hours or one hour and they cannot possibly approach all these topics. So to me, it's, it's the very essence of fandom that we get to go everywhere and anywhere. We get to go in space. We get to go back in time, you know, with these characters, with any character. And that's brilliant. Yes, the limitless nature of fan fiction is something that will never get old to me. I will never cease to be amazed by that and delighted by it on a daily basis. <laughs> that is wonderful. I love that so much. We are coming to the end, unfortunately. Do you have any other fan fiction writers that you wanted to talk about or shout out on the podcast before we end today? Specifically, the folks who changed my life because I got to meet them and be friends with them and admire their work and their creativity. I do. And <laughs> Verity Burns was one of the first fandom folks I met. Five, five mystery novels, like things that could be put on television. Her mysteries are that good in fandom. So Verity Burns, 221B Hound, who is a close, close friend. I've published some of her work. Uh, Norelle M. Harris is her, and I'm allowed to say that, 221B Hound is Norelle M. Harris. And Arian, she wrote um, a story a day for a year, short story a day for a year, and was it was an amazing journey. The fandom, Sherlock fandom, got to watch Winkle Picker is somebody I met in Sherlock, and we both started writing also um, Star Wars stories. She's amazingly gifted. I got to publish one of her books. A Secret Scribbler, who is also an artist, and also got to publish some of her work. Marlin is this wonderful storyteller in the Star Wars fandom who has a very, very a gentle style and um, a very myth. She loves uh, like Irish myths and stuff, and she researches and, and does, tells her stories with real grace. And then, of course, Hyacinth Sky 747, her What to Do When Your Flatmate is Homicidal. And then, let me just quickly say, the artists, Alto Cello, who I love her work, Silin, Pangea, Five of Spades, Black King's Dream, Susanna After Dark, Bro Harry was a legendary Sherlock artist and unfortunately he passed away but just fandom is amazing there's always somebody new and there's so many people who are still there and let me just finish by saying please don't be shy comment on what you love we do not care if it's just a heart we want to know people are out there so if you love something let the people who created it know because you'll change their day. I promise you'll change their day and they will love you for it. No matter how shy you are, just a little heart, just something, because it'll give to you at the same time you're giving to the creator. So hopefully, please love on what you love because we are a community. We are a community and, you know, let's love everything together and shout together or whisper together, however you do it. Please try and Involve yourself if you want to be involved because we want you involved. Fandom wants you. That is beautiful. Thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your day to come and share your thoughts with us and your memories. This has been amazing. Such a blast. Thank you so much again for joining us today. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Chaos. And I just, I love fandom and it's a wonderful, powerful, powerful thing. 
And I hope people let it power them. Amen. Yes. Check out her stories on AO3 and give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. Keep on rolling.